Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Academy of American Poets Prize and Pushcart Prize winning poet Maggie Smith. Her new memoir is You Could Make This Place Beautiful, which is published by our friends at One Signal Publishers. Maggie, welcome to the program. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Maggie, the first thing I have to say is that this book, You Can Make This Place Beautiful, is amazing. Of course, the language and the sentence level writing are top notch, but the book is also compulsively readable. Uh, Once I started it, I didn't want to do anything else until I finished it. Uh, But before we dive into this memoir, Maggie, I want to ask you, you have lived in and around Columbus, Ohio for most of your life. Uh, What is the literary scene like in Columbus? Ohio right now? And what has it been like watching it grow into its current form? Yeah, it's amazing and incredibly diverse. Um, You know, I've I've basically lived here my whole life. And so there have always been writers here. I I think I always feel like I need to remind people of that living in the Midwest, Mm. that it's like not all writers live in New York City. (laughs) Um, That's just not actually the way that it works. And Mm. so a lot of us are here um, I'm here because my people are here, mm-hmm. but it's also like an incredibly affordable, vibrant, interesting, easy to get to other places kind of place to live. And it has a great art scene, like mm-hmm. visual art, great music, um, terrific writers. It's just, it's like a, it's a great place to be. And it's nice when people come here for a book tour or whatever else might bring them here, maybe a show. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah. Columbus. Like it's like a little, it's like a little secret. I'm like, yes, it's a real city with lots of poets and fiction writers and nonfiction writers and bands and filmmakers and music producers. And you know, we we do it all here. We just do it on our scale. Absolutely. It's been great to to watch it kind of blow up from afar. My friends, um, Erica and, and Eliza, who started $2 Radio, I've been following yes. from the beginning. And then um, my friend uh, Bill Volman has his archives at OSU Libraries now. And um, yeah, it's just been amazing. Well, thank you so much for that, Maggie. Uh, let's now jump into this excellent new memoir. You can make this place beautiful. You state at the beginning of this memoir that it is not a tell-all. What do you mean by this? What's the difference between your memoir and one that is marketed as a tell-all? Well, I guess I say that in the first sentence because Mm -hmm. it's important for me to even sort of come up against the idea that something like a tell-all exists. Mm -hmm. Like there's just no such thing um, as a tell-all because we are only writing from our singular perspective, we can only ever speak for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Any attempt we have to project into other people's experience is just that, mm-hmm. <laughs> an attempt. And so I, I went into this project really thinking about, I think all of our sort of preconceived notions about what a memoir or what life writing in general, you know, even the essay, like what that is and what we, as readers of this genre expect or think we are owed Mm. by the author 
And, um, and so I really wanted to sort of, in, in a kind of meta way, discuss that in the book, you know, mm -hmm. like, I'm going to offer you some of my life, but I'm not going to offer you everything. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I'm being coy. It's because actually everything isn't on the menu. Mm -hmm. We don't, I don't have access to all of that. And wouldn't it be nice if I did, Right. <laughs> but I don't, yeah. there is no omniscient narrator in life as, as we might wish there, there were. Right. Yeah, absolutely, Maggie. And one more question about the nature of this book. You write that this book was many other books before it was this one. Uh, can you talk about this concept that a work of art is many things before it becomes the thing that it is? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're someone who revises obsessively as mm -hmm. I do, mm -hmm. um, then by the time readers receive a finished piece, it's lived a lot of lives, mm -hmm. um, private lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are, you know, even just a, just a single poem, I might revise 20 times over anywhere from three days to 10 years before I feel like I'm ready to kind mm -hmm. of kick it out of the nest and send it into the world and let other people have their own relationship with it. So, you know, this book existed in different pieces and in different forms and some things came out, some things stayed in and some things got changed. Mm -hmm. And that's just the nature of the beast, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you find yourself to compulsively edit as you are working on a piece or do you wait until you're finished and then go back and edit from the beginning? I, I probably split the difference. I try mm. not to obsessively revise mm. as I go because mm. I find that if when I do that, mm. it's because I'm thinking about audience too mm. early in the process. Yeah. And I really try not to think about audience until I have sort of a fully formed thing. And then I think about like, okay, what is this? and mm. Where might it go? But in the beginning when I'm just drafting, I don't want to let other people's or the idea, rather, of other people's expectations, wants, pet peeves, wishes for this piece of writing to impact where it might go. So I tend to just sort of blah, get it all out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I go back and I'm like, what is this? Like, is it a poem? Is it an essay? Is it like, what size container does this thing need? Mm -hmm. Um and, and then I kind of start to kind of hone it and focus it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Maggie. Um, the story in your memoir opens when your husband, your ex-husband, uh, comes home from a business trip. It is a trip uh, or a destination that he has gone to many times. You write that when he came home from this specific trip, something had shifted, maybe just slightly, but perceptibly. Can you elaborate on this sensation, Maggie? What did you sense? What were the signs of this perceptible shift? Well, I think we all feel this. Like mm -hmm. when you spend time with someone and you're like, something's off. Mm -hmm. And there's not really a way to sort of be more articulate about it, except to say, if you spend enough time with someone, whether it's your spouse or your best friend or your brother or, or your mom, mm -hmm. if something isn't quite right, we tend to feel like a little bit of like, I, I might call it a disturbance in the force, right. <laughs> as my son is obsessed with Star Wars, like, you just kind of sense that something is uh, not quite, not quite right. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes that like little sense doesn't mean anything at all, or someone had a bad day or they're tired or, you know, it's, it's, 
I think our nature to read into when the weather kind of changes with a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes it's nothing and sometimes it's not nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, speaking of a disturbance in the force, my son is six, almost seven. And we spent all night last night building a Lego spaceship while the Mandalorian was playing in the background. So oh, that's, that it sounds like our house, like yeah. my son's entire room. It's like a Lego horde Yep. <laughs> of every, ever like there's like the, the at, at, and the like tie bomber and the, oh yes. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm your people. I know. There you go. <laughs> um, thank you, Maggie. Well, um, so back to this story. Um, so your your husband at the time comes home from um, from this trip, and you find a postcard uh, with a woman's name, some information on it. How did you decide to confront your husband about this? What was going through your mind at this moment of discovery between then and when you decided to reveal to your husband that you found this thing? Well, I think whenever we find something that we don't expect, it's mm-hmm. like a, a moment of like, is this real? Mm-hmm. You know, like, am I misinterpreting what I'm seeing? Like, I know I'm actually not misinterpreting mm-hmm. what I'm seeing. But when mm-hmm. we see something that feels sort of unreal or unbelievable, I mm-hmm. think we first have like that gut check of, is this actually happening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or we kind of pull back from ourselves and start watching it from third person. Like, Mm -hmm. is this, is this woman really experiencing this? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I had to, I had to process a little bit. I had to process a little bit in that moment. Thank you so much for that answer, Maggie. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Maggie Smith. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Maggie Smith, author of You Can Make This Place Beautiful, which is published by our friends at Open Signal Publishers. Maggie, how much time passed between the events that you are writing about in this book and um, our conversation now and eventually the publication of this book? Yeah, well, it, the book covers sort of a lot of time, so it just depends. I mean, right. it covers it covers like I'm in college for part of it, and it mm-hmm. covers graduate school, and it covers the birth of my children. So, um, you know, like a number of years, you know, mm-hmm. twenty some years for some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent bits of the book um, are, as of now, a couple of years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's pretty much my adult life up until a couple of years ago. Right. And, um, how much time passed before the answer of what happened, um, at the beginning of this novel, uh, to your marriage, how much time passed changed from 
your answer to being sometimes people just grow apart to <laughs> um, this masterfully meditative memoir? Well, yeah, the, I mean, the, the piece of the book that you're referencing is, mm -hmm. is me thinking about actually being on book tour for my book, Keep Moving, mm -hmm. which was written sort of out of my divorce, but not about my divorce. Right. And people would ask on that book tour, so what, oh. like what happened? And mm -hmm. my answer at that time was people just grow apart, not because that was the answer, but because it was the most diplomatic way I could move on from not wanting to talk about it. Right. And so really the, the act of writing this book was me kind of sitting down and taking some time mm -hmm. um, to sort of ask myself the question I think a lot of people ask themselves in middle age, which is how did, how did I get here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know? To, to quote talking heads, um, like, how did I get here? Like, what, what exactly happened that what sort of forks in the road or choices or paths taken or paths not taken led me to my life looking like this mm -hmm. right now and all of its like, you know, beautiful parts and all of its difficult parts. And so that was um, really the sort of goal with me for this book was to better understand the past myself yeah. so that I could be a little bit more at peace in the present. Right. And um, so Maggie, uh, I think two weeks ago, we have a series here in, in Aspen called Winter Words and Aspen Words, which is, you know, basically arts and lecture series where authors come and visit. And we were hosting the author Kwame Alexander, who is a mm -hmm. um, he writes poetry, uh, long narrative poetry for kids. Um, and his upcoming book is a memoir um, about his relationship with his father. Um, and when we were at a dinner after this, uh, we had the conversation about how uncomfortable he was putting himself out there in this manner because he's used to writing, you know, poems about basketball and poems about, you know, jazz music and Muhammad Ali. And all of a sudden, um, he's making himself very vulnerable and, and, you know, to use a cliche, he's making himself an open book. Um, what is it like to go from like, you know, doing a publicity cycle for poetry to doing a publicity cycle for a very personal memoir? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's more challenging, I mm -hmm. think, because I mean, even the way that I wrote the book, I was really careful um, to sort of only speak for myself, to not mm -hmm. include much information that I felt like I didn't want to tell other people's stories, right? Mm -hmm. So but then, of course, readers um, are inherently curious for reasons I absolutely understand. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sort of like push and pull tension, I think, mm -hmm. between like, but but what was that like or but I want to know more. And then me sort of feeling like, well, <laughs> I like what I was willing to share mm -hmm. is between those two covers. And so to like extrapolate on it more if I was going to do what I would have done it on the page. Mm -hmm. And so we, there is that kind of tension of like, yes, I'm kind of showing up a little bit more naked than usual, but I'm still, I'm still holding a lot back mm -hmm. um, just for myself and for my kids and for everybody else sort of involved in my life. Who's not a writer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine because I, I, I know I have the feeling and I, I feel like I know that this book is going to be extremely popular <laughs> um, and I just can't, you know, good, good luck, Maggie is, is all I'll say to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. My next question is who 
Exactly, Maggie. Finds the concept of deep fried pickle spears and ranch dressing disgusting because I'm from uh, the South and it's not me. No, I'm so glad you like them. I love deep fried pickle spears with ranch dressing. But I realized when I was writing it and describing that, I was like, you know, maybe that sounds odd to people who aren't like, I don't know where that came from. I wasn't sure if it was a Southern thing or a Midwestern thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm pretty sure some people would not like that. Like mm-hmm. it, for the same reason why I say I'm not for everyone, like, right. or my writing isn't for everyone. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's fairly like a strong flavor that you probably either like really like it or really don't. Mm-hmm. I think pickles and ranch is probably in that same category. Right. Yeah. And you know, in the South, they, they deep fry everything. So um, I'm not opposed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Might as well. Um, well, thank you, Maggie. You write uh, in this memoir that you don't have to understand everything and that you don't think understanding is owed you. And then you say that you didn't get 2001 A Space Odyssey, but your own (laughs) life, that would be nice to get. And Maggie, I don't get 2001 either. Um, (laughs) Other Kubrick films that I both get and appreciate, but 2001, I mean, I I don't know. Uh, What do you think people appreciate about this film and in the end what do you feel like you have a firmer grasp on your life or 2001 a space odyssey (laughs) that's such a great question i would say my life um thank goodness um and it's probably because there aren't like apes in the beginning Mm -hmm. like if there were apes at the very beginning of my life Mm-hmm. and like an old man and uh, a sort of like malevolent computer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think my life would be more confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that movie so perplexing. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can take it in certain sections and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I understand what's happening here. But then we'll cut to something else and I'm like, I don't get it. Like I respect it deeply. Mm-hmm. But I'm having a, and there are a few other movies Um oh my gosh, Tree of Life is like that for me. Like there are a few other movies where I'm watching it and I'm like letting it wash over me Mm -hmm. and I can enjoy it and I can feel something because of it. But if someone asked me to summarize it or explain it or make like some deep analytical connections, I would be at a loss. I just, I don't feel like, maybe I'm not the ideal audience. Right. Right. Understood. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I identified with that big time. Um, <laughs> my next question, Maggie, is how does the dream of getting paid to write differ from the reality? Oh, um, I don't know what the dream actually looks like. like mm. I don't I don't know what the dream looks like. I don't think um, I mean, I is the dream sort of like that you're in a quiet space with a typewriter or a notebook without interruption, just an idea, like the muse just arrives and ideas just flow out of you onto the page. And then someone comes and whisks that thing away and leaves you a sack of money. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's the dream. That's not actually how it works. I mean, I I'm, I'm working in, in this office most of the day. I am continually sidetracked by emails Um, I am continually sidetracked by grading grad student work or commenting on grad student work. Um, I'm continually sidetracked by just like the business of life and 
lunches that need packing and kids that need driven to soccer and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have to write a blurb. I have to do a thing. I have to do a thing. So it's, it's um, a kind of a cobbled together life of many um, competing interests, only some, one of which is actually like the poem or essay that wants to come out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm not able to get that thing out on a given day because the other things that need my attention are talking a little too loud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's probably not as romantic as like the movie version of it might be. Um, it looks mm -hmm. a lot more like regular work at a computer where you're being asked to kind of like leave and do a bunch of other stuff for other people most of the time. Having said that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have it any other way mm -hmm. because the other truth is all of those things that I find distracting with the exception of email are really beautiful things I want mm -hmm. to have time for in my life. And I don't actually think my writing would be as as valuable to me or to others if it was the only thing I did mm -hmm. you know like my writing is informed by my parenting and the walks I take with my dog and the conversations I have with my students and the conversations I have on podcasts and mm -hmm. you know it's not a closed circuit of information where I'm in a cabin all day just talking to my own mind <laughs> Right. Um, you hit on something interesting there when you were talking about, you know, sitting in an office and writing and maybe that's part of the dream because for, I don't know, two years or so, um, this podcast became sort of like an oral history of, of writers in the pandemic. And, um, you know, when I would ask the question, you know, how has your life changed? How has your writing changed during the pandemic? the answer most of the time was it hasn't, you know, yeah. I'd sit in an office and I write and I'm still sitting in an office and writing. But on the other hand, you would have um, authors like Chuck Palahniuk who really like they go out on these large author tours and they make a spectacle of it. Um, and that's what they really enjoy. Uh, what type of writer are you, Maggie? Are you the writer that you know, would prefer to sit in an office and write versus going out on a book tour? Or are you the type of writer who over the last couple of years, you're kind of chomping at the bit to do these events where you're throwing rubber severed limbs into a crowd or something? <laughs> there will be no rubber severed <laughs> limbs. Um, you know, I'm kind of both, I would mm -hmm. say like, I, I'm, I'm an introvert. I really like working in my house all day. I know some people would find that really isolating. Mm -hmm. um, I had coworkers when I left my job in publishing say like, but who will you talk to? Aren't you going to get lonely? And I just thought, well, you don't know me at all. If you mm -hmm. think I'm going to miss the talk <laughs> around the microwave here. Mm -hmm. um, so most of the time I'm actually really good just having my small, quiet, life where I'm parenting in the morning and in the evenings. And then the day I have to myself, um, with a couple of dog walks mm -hmm. that said, I zoomed my last two books on mm -hmm. tour just from this very writing room. Yeah. And it's not the same thing. So I, I think my readings aren't much of a spectacle, <laughs> but, but I miss being in a bookstore with other people. I miss the sound and the energy that you hear when you read something that resonates with someone and they make what I call the cake sound, like the sound you make when you've had a nice bite of cake. Mm. And I miss hugging people and mm. I miss signing books in person. I miss laughing with people, having like 
that chit chat that you get to have and that on Zoom where it looks like the Brady Bunch mm-hmm. <laughs> on a webinar or whatever, it's just, it's it's felt um, like a diminished way of doing it. So for the making of the work, I am all for just being in my little hidey hole, mm. but I'm really excited to get to go out on tour with this book after a couple of years of Zooming um, because I miss people and I like being in community with other writers and readers. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Maggie. Um, Finally, and listeners, before we wrap this up, understand that this memoir uh, is going to be one of the best books of the year. This is likely no surprise to you. It has been on so many lists already, but I can confirm if you are this far into this interview, this is the book that you need in your Mm -hmm. life right now. I can't wait for you to read it. Um, But Maggie, finally, you write that betrayal is neat because no matter what else happened it's as if the person doused everything with lighter fluid and threw a match um which by the way i don't have to tell you this because you're an amazing poet but gosh the imagery in this book is amazing um thank you absolutely thank you uh but when you say no matter what else happened what is this uh what else that you are imagining and how does betrayal give the betrayed an easy out And what comes next when the betrayed person realizes all of this? Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I I was just thinking in any relationship, right? If one person sort of does someone else wrong, or at least that's how you perceive it, right? Whatever that thing is, like they ghosted you, they lied to you, they whatever the thing is, mm-hmm. it's really easy to be like, well, this relationship isn't going anywhere because so-and-so did X, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to stay friends with that guy because he did X. I'm mm-hmm. not going to stay married to that person because they did X. I'm definitely quitting that job because my boss did X. Mm-hmm. And what X allows us to do is not think about our own complicity in the situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and And, you know, probably at certain times, we don't want to think about that, right? It's so much easier to think about how other people's behavior has caused our problems Mm -hmm. when, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes people are just do terrible things and it's not our fault and, and it is what it is. But what I was really thinking about all through the writing of this book was like, yeah, but what's my stuff to own too, Mm. right? Like families any kind of relationship, families, working relationships, bands, like friendship groups that like group text relationship, all of them, all that stuff's Mm co-created. Like nobody hands you a blueprint for what it needs to look like. You, you make it every day. You're teaching people how to treat you. You're choosing how you treat others. So when something doesn't work out, whatever that relationship is, as tempting as it might be to point to that X as like the thing Mm -hmm. that ruined everything. I think the more mature and yet really hard thing to do is to say, yes, but what else was going on? Right? Mm -hmm. Like what didn't, how, how maybe didn't I show up at this point or this point or because thinking about X doesn't actually help you move forward. It doesn't help you build better relationships with other people. It doesn't, help you get to know yourself better. So that's, I think that's big. It's just sort of what what lesson can you learn about decisions that other people made? Not much, but what lessons can you learn in your life about the decisions that you've made? That is more fruitful, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Maggie. And that was going to be my my last question, but now I have just one more because the first two things that you brought up were um, family and a workplace. And um, I have a Facebook acquaintance, uh, Casey, who wrote something yesterday that I saw that was like, um, here's a list of signs uh, that will let you know if you work in a toxic workplace. If the if your boss says we're like one big family, uh, <laughs> like that's it. That's the whole list. <laughs> um, that's it. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think that's funny. I mean, I I, I have heard that about work too because uh-huh. I think sometimes the concept of family mm-hmm. or the concept of community mm-hmm. is used to like justify some pretty dysfunctional behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you're kind of mistreated, but then, but then you're thrown the bone of, but we're a family, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to, to stick around. Whereas if you think of it as a business relationship and you're being mistreated in a, in a cold business relationship, you're more likely to be able to extract yourself Mm -hmm. from that situation. So I actually think when people talk about family in that way, it's kind of manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. And thank you for your thoughts on that. Well, and also Maggie, thank you for writing this wonderfully illuminating memoir. I know there are a lot of readers out there in the world right now who need this book. And I look forward to the moment that they find it. Listeners, I've been speaking with Maggie Smith, author of You Can Make This Place Beautiful, which is published by our friends at One Signal Publishers. Maggie. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Maggie Smith for joining me. Copies of You Can Make This Place Beautiful can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quail Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN. That's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.